Hi, I'm Dr. Annalene Weston, Dental Legal Consultant at Dental Protection. Welcome to Risk Bites, a series of podcasts created specifically for dental practitioners in Australia. Risk Bites looks at the key dental legal risks and issues affecting dental practitioners across Australia and provides helpful advice and guidance on how to steer clear of them, leaving you free to provide safe and high quality dental care for your patients. So in this episode, my colleague, Dr. Mike Rutherford and I are going to be talking through some of the real-time risks that we're seeing with wisdom teeth cases right now. So Mike, do you want to start us off with why this is so important? Sure. Um, It seems to me that we've been doing a fair bit about wisdom teeth recently um, in in RiskWise and uh, webinars with Dr. John Arvia. Um, And the reason is because this is a very important part of risk management and we've seen a fairly recent upsurge in the number of claims around wisdom teeth and also the costs of those claims. Now, the cost is uh, is important because we as members of DPL and the underwriter MDA and I, if they pay out more, pre- more costs, our premiums go up. So if we can minimise this risk, it helps all of us, not only the ones that have wisdom teeth trouble, but all those members that share in this pool. No, absolutely. And this has been an unusual uh, series of cases, hasn't it, Mike? Because unlike n- normal trends or patterns that we see, there's a pattern. But this wisdom tooth uh, peak or increase in cases hasn't come with a pattern, has it? No, it hasn't. It's sort of come almost all of a sudden. Um, and there's a few theories. Uh, we certainly talk to our panel lawyers about this. And we've noticed a considerable increase in the costs of claims in some of the states in Australia. And some of it is related to changes in legislation about claims in other fields, such as motor vehicle accidents, meaning, if you want to be cynical, that lawyers have to find other avenues. And dentistry, I guess, is is an obvious one. We as clinicians are procedurists. We, everything we do on patients is a procedure, whereas our medical colleagues, most of the stuff they do is advice. Or diagnosis. Or diagnosis. Now, there's problems in those in itself, but there's more scope for something to go wrong in a procedure. And the wisdom tooth complications. I mean, we all know as practitioners that wisdom teeth carry with them higher risks than other extractions because of the horrible, horrible outcomes that you can have. Critically, I'm talking about paresthesia, of course, which isn't just a numb lip. It can be numbness and or pain and or burning and or pins and needles type sensation, sometimes concurrently, like some of these nerve injuries we see are awful, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And I think sometimes as clinicians, we underestimate this impact. I mean, this can be a lifelong burden. Typically, our wisdom teeth patients are in their late teens, early 20s. These people may carry a numbness, a slurring of words, uh, an inability to taste or enjoy kissing for the rest of their lives. And this is potentially 60 years. Absolutely. So that is relevant. I, I think there's other aspects too. Um, I think people are less accepting of an adverse outcome. We as a profession, and it's a generalisation, don't forecast those outcomes as well as we should as part of the consent process. We're getting bigger claims. And also something that John Arvia mentioned the other day is the population's appetite to have treatment under local anaesthetic 
is lessened. Mm. People expect general anaesthetic for procedures. So often what we're seeing is not that we as general dentists don't have the ability to remove wisdom teeth, but sometimes our patients want the GA facility rather than the expertise of a, of a, of, of a specialist. And I think this is something that forms part of the consent process that mm-hmm. we have to talk about what it's like. If you've got patients that have often never had a local anaesthetic for, say, a restoration, and this is their first surgical experience, it's a higher burden for us to try and get that message over to a patient about what it's going to be like. Yeah, because even the block itself is pretty ordinary. And of course, you mentioned John Avia. Um, That's in reference, of course, for those of our colleagues who haven't had the opportunity to watch it. Mike and John did a webinar regarding Wisdom Teeth, which you can backwatch on our e-learning platform, which you access through our webpage. So Mike, I thought it would be helpful, or we of course discussed this before and we thought it would be helpful to be completely clear, to sort of break this down into sections starting off where we commonly see issues. Now, this isn't relating to the treatment. We're talking about a patient has an adverse outcome. So something goes wrong in the treatment. That patient makes a complaint, whether it be to the regulator or increasingly with wisdom teeth complaints, legal claims, because that outcome is horrible. And a claimant lawyer has a look at that outcome and goes, a horrible outcome like this must be worth some money, essentially, don't they? So We then get the records and we assess them and we assess what's happened. And oftentimes we find issues in the process, whether it be the conversations or the documentation. So I guess we wanted to walk through that, didn't we, Mike? Starting off with the assessment. So would you like to begin there, Mike? Where do we commonly see issues with the assessment of wisdom teeth? Sure. We, we call this a vulnerability assessment. And, in, and what we're essentially doing is trying to pick out where the regulator, the lawyers or a plaintiff-friendly expert is going to see vulnerabilities in what our members have done. And the first thing we look at is, why did you take that wisdom tooth out? And this might sound obvious, but unfortunately, too often we see the first entry is needs wisdom teeth out. Now, that might be a treatment plan, but it should be preceded with a history and also a diagnosis. I mean, could you imagine a a surgeon wrote down needs appendix out? I mean, how well would that stand up? We, We all know that there's going to be a history before, but if it's not recorded, we can't justify our decision to take a wisdom tooth out. Agreed. Gone are the days where the orthodontist has said, they need their wisdom teeth out. I've, I've made the teeth perfectly straight. You've got to take out these symptom-free wisdom teeth. Um, we need, it's not, we're not justifying our treatment, but we're explaining it. So we need to have there that history of how many times it's been saw, to what extent, the impact, and then what our diagnosis is, mm. what it looks like orally, what it looks like radiographically. Yeah, that's a really important what, one. What we see, the future is going to be. Um, and if that's not there, there's, there's a real vulnerability in that. I've got a couple of cases on my books, Mike, and I'm sure you have as well, where the claimant is now saying, so the claimant is the person who's suing the dental practitioner, just to be clear. But that claimant's saying, oh, I didn't have any pain before, actually. Yeah. And the dentist is saying, well, yeah, they did. 
But because it's not documented in the notes, then the patient's version of events is, of course, always preferred. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and that's not unreasonable because the courts will hold that we see hundreds of patients with wisdom teeth. Why should we remember specifically what went on with this one particular patient? Whereas for the patient, this is a life event. Mm-hmm. Somebody saying, I need my wisdom teeth out. They, the courts will prefer their memory over our memory of you know, patient five on day two. Yeah, because it stands out, doesn't it? Let's yeah. be honest, having your wisdom teeth out yes. is pretty memorable. So what about, uh, so that's our assessment. So what about our discussions, Mike? Of course, we talk about discussions all the time. So this is an area we often see issues with wisdom teeth, isn't it? It is. And look, there's a tendency towards written consent forms and we support written consent forms. But I guess one way we try and explain it is if you go onto iTunes and you tick the box that says you've written those, uh, you've read those 26 pages of disclaimers, um, sometimes we give people a generic uh, consent form which may have things that are not relevant such as chance of a root in the sinus when you're taking out a bottom wisdom tooth. Mm-hmm. So we can't expect our patients to read it and sign it without an explanation. So there has to be that personalization. And whether this is by underlying, by deleting in pyro um, or emphasizing points. So if it is particularly close to the IDN, you, you, you underline it a few mm-hmm. times or do a little drawing or even draw on the x-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can satisfy yourself that your patient understands, but also satisfy any third party that might want to look at this. It needs to be meaningful to them as well. I mean, we talk about the famous dental protection case from the UK, the trombone player, mm-hmm. who or trumpet player he was, I believe, who played for the Philharmonic Orchestra, had a wisdom tooth taken out, wasn't warned of nerve injury, and of course, couldn't play their instrument anymore and lost their career. Now, that's a very, very old case. It's been quite publicly documented by dental protection. But there are other people, like they don't have to be a professional musician for an nerve injury to significantly affect their life. You mentioned slurring of speech, public speakers, teachers. There are a whole number of people. You mentioned loss of taste. There are a number of people who rely on their taste for their job. Yep. And this is where it extends beyond just the inconvenience to the person, but receptionists, teachers, barristers, uh, waiters, um, all these people need to be able to speak clearly. Mm. Um, Many have to be able to taste um, not being able to control your lips and dribbling, these, apart from the social embarrassment, this can affect your professional career. Mm. So I think we're just circling back on just how important it is that we understand, we, we of all people understand better than our patients, the potential impact of an adverse outcome. And we need to make sure they understand. And as part of this discussion, of course, we talk about the possibility of a specialist referral. And that is an important thing to consider because not only might there be situations where the difficulty of the tooth surpasses where you're comfortable, Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> there might be patients who are difficult because, I mean, we're talking often about young patients, as you said, with wisdom teeth, but there are also older patients who need wisdom teeth taken out. And there are also young people who have complex medical histories. <laughs> they may not be suitable for general practice. And it's okay to say that. You mentioned the GA referral. I mean, I have had practices where I've had access to theatre, but I don't currently at my current practice. So that's not something I can offer people. <laughs> and then, of course, I'm not a specialist. I mean, I take out wisdom teeth sometimes. They're a specialist and that's a large bulk of what they do. One would argue they're yeah, going to be yeah. far better skilled. And the patient needs to understand all those things, I think, don't you? Yeah, I do. And I, I think um, sometimes we want to provide the treatment and I think the patient's best interest overrides what we think is what may be our best interest or, or our interest in, mm. in, in the procedure. Um, we've got to make sure that the patient truly understands what they're getting themselves into. And when we want to help, we have to really help the patient and really helping the patient isn't taking out a wisdom tooth, rushing it, not having enough time or getting halfway through and going, oh, maybe it was more distally impacted than I thought it was on my OPG. That's not actually helping the patient. And of course, the other thing that doesn't help the patient is necessarily... Um, when I say agreeing to their time frame, you know what I mean by that, Mike. So uh, taking someone's wisdom tooth out because they're getting married next week, it's a terrible idea. And yep. not just with wisdom teeth, of course, with many procedures. So do you want to expand on that too? Yeah, we, we, we find this that um, often, I guess, as, as practitioners, we get you know, pressure asserted on us to try and sort out a problem on a time frame, either because you know, a young patient's going travelling for three months and they've suddenly realised or somebody said, you should get your wisdom teeth sorted out before you leave next week. Or, as you said, a wedding or something else. Um, patients will sometimes try and put us under time pressures to get a procedure done. And, you know, Sod's Law says if somebody's getting married in three weeks, they're the one that's going to have external bleeding. They absolutely are. <laughs> Even if there is no adverse outcome, that is going to be a significant impact on the way they feel about what you've done mm -hmm, and sure. whether you've explained that. So I think you know, our advice is don't be pressured into what you consider an unreasonable time frame or if you end up deciding to do that, um, make sure you very clearly articulate what the potential downfalls will be, that you may still not be able to eat solids, that you may have external bleeding. Mm -hmm. um, that you may still be uncomfortable and need pain pills. And of course, it's not just the patient's time frame; it's yours as well. Like I often think it's the terrible, terrible idea to do a complex or difficult procedure or something with the potential for the patient to need you after the procedure on a Monday and then go on holiday on a Tuesday because you're just not there for them. You're not there. And, and this is something I got from my own practice. We had quite a few uh, country folk that had come down to the city for Christmas to see the, the relatives and we had a surprising number of people who wanted their wisdom teeth removed over the Christmas period. Now, that's probably the worst time, you know, from the practitioner point of view, to, you know, because we want to be on our own holiday. We're not going to be available or, you know, we're going to have to go and open up specially to see the patient. Um, so you've got to balance that, you know, that what works for the patient and what we believe works for us, but also works for their aftercare, which we understand more than they do. Yeah, I think so too. And 
sometimes, as you've said, people come in with an expectation that we'll do the procedure now. And that, of course, isn't just relating to wisdom teeth. That can relate to many things. But sometimes, although they've come in with that perception, they don't necessarily understand what it means. Like we've talked about paresthesia. Unless we truly explain to a patient what paresthesia really means, if we say you might have a numb lip, that's actually very different to what paresthesia really is and meaningfully could be for that person. They do need to have time to consider. So they might come in and say, I need you to take my wisdom tooth out right now. But they haven't really given consent to the procedure, even though it sounds like they have, because they don't really know what can go wrong and they need time to think about that and to absorb it really, don't they? They do. And particularly if they've got no surgical experience. I mean, I'm referencing John Arvier again, but um, he had occasionally, when people didn't really understand the concept of a numb lip, offered to give them a block just so they could see what it felt like if they'd never been numb before. Um, and he said very few people took him up on the offer, but um, <laughs> look, it's not a bad way of explaining what a numb lip feels like. Yeah, it's not. That's so. funny. And of course, the other problem with wisdom teeth, when we we do need to take the wisdom tooth out, it can often be that there's uh, infection present. Mm -hmm. And of course, there can be complications with that with getting someone numb. And it's a difficult subject, isn't it? Do we, do we take wisdom teeth out? Do we take infected wisdom teeth out there? And then does the patient need to think about it? Do you have any views on that? Um, yeah, look, the guidelines certainly say removing in the presence of um, localised infection is quite reasonable. Um, but again, I think you could say, but is it in the patient's best interest? Because when something goes wrong, unfortunately, unfortunately people and sometimes experts will say, well, gee, why did you do it without antibiotics? Why did you do mm -hmm. it when I was infected? Um, so unless there's a good reason, why not delay it until it's cleaned up a bit? Yeah, it's so hard, isn't it? Because we were taught never let the sun set on undrained pus, pus yeah. of course. <laughs> they probably don't teach the young ones that anymore. They probably have much nicer words than pus, I don't know. But, it, but then you and I both know that sometimes trying to, raise a flap and then get that get good closure with that flap if it's all manky it can just be mm -hmm. super hard it can make healing really difficult too yeah i think it's, and sometimes you're damned if you do if you're damned if you don't yeah, that's for sure the therapeutic guidelines certainly say there is no indication for um preoperative perioperative antibiotics in the absence of any infection um but you know what people are going to say if they get an infection and you haven't given antibiotics so we're left with this bit of dilemma of having to comply with the guidelines, but also having to justify, if you like, our actions when things don't go as well as they planned. And of course, everyone's got 20-20 hindsight. So as soon as something goes wrong with an extraction, there will be experts in that field. And I mean experts, because we like to think we're assessed by peers in legal claims. We're not. Mm -hmm. We are, they are experts and they're experts at assessing what you've done and finding all the things you did wrong. And they're looking with 2020 hindsight saying, well, of course that happened. And of course that patient suffered this. And of yeah. course, because they're looking at it with the benefit of knowing what went wrong. Exactly. And it's, a, it's so much easier to be smart and after the effect, uh, the effect, the, Isn't the it? event, sorry. Um, I guess that leads us on to post-operative complications, um, and appropriate post-operative care. But do you want to talk about that, Annie? Yeah, I think that, as I've mentioned, it's really important that we can be there for people after something's gone wrong for two reasons. One is for their comfort and knowing that we actually do care. 
Uh, and the other reason being that we might actually be able to help them and help them with the pain or the problem that they're having. But also it's really important that you then reassess the patient and assess what's actually going on. Don't just assume we've got a dry socket. I think you and I are both smiling, thinking of several cases we have where it's not been a dry socket at all, but it's been indicative of, for example, the jaw fracture or uh, the beginnings of some unpleasant bone healing anomaly. So you need to reassess that patient with fresh eyes. Don't just make assumptions about what's actually wrong with them. And it might be that you do actually need to refer people postoperatively, don't you think, because of what's happened? Absolutely. And and I think there's a couple of golden rules. And I guess I'm saying this not because we're smart, but because we've just had the experience of seeing things go wrong. We've got that benefit of hindsight, hindsight right? Yeah. So <laughs> we've seen everything go wrong. Lot, so like, oh, we lots have all of this other knowledge. people's um, problems. That's right. Um, and, and I guess a couple of fundamentals is if somebody rings up with post-operative complications, you've really got to see them on the day. You do. Um, and you've got to see them in person. And as Annie said, you've got to reassess from, um, from for right from the start. Every now and then we find out that there's actually a, an acute abscess on the seven in front of the eight, mm -hmm. which is creating the problems. And if you just assume it's the eight and it's a dry socket, you're going to miss things like that. Um, another important aspect is that the ADA guidelines and coding, you know, 324, 323, they all include routine postoperative care. Uh, it's in nobody's interest to charge a patient you've seen because they've had a post-operative complication. Um, just a personal experience, uh, somebody I know recently had an operation and they were required to go back to theatre the next day for, to stop some bleeding. There was no charge, there was no mention mm. of that second surgery. Um, not even a, look, I won't charge you about this, it's just an assumption that this is part of the service. It's inherent, isn't it, though? It is, and but it, it, it wipes out some of those little niggles about did something go wrong, did they not do the job properly? You get the feeling they're professional and they're caring and nothing fires a patient up more than feeling that they may be being hard done by and then they get charged for the... Yeah, for the experience. Yeah, they really double down on that ill feeling, don't they? And I they think do. with the post-operative complications as well, it's really important that your patient knows what to expect after the procedure. So what the normal range is <laughs> and then <laughs> when things are unusual and what to do and as in how to contact you. Because how many times have we had, Mike, where people have had post-operative complications and they've not known or been able to contact the dental practitioner and they've trotted off somewhere else and found someone very happy to criticise what's happened. Absolutely. And, and, and this is an important thing that not only are you caring for your patient, but you're controlling the narrative. Absolutely. You can make sure that your patient understands your perception of it and, and I guess your expertise because you were the one that was involved. So there's professionalism there, but there's also some common sense in being able to control what happens to your patient. And look, if your patient is going to end up needing to be hospitalised, and one thing that we see frequently commonly bearing in mind because we see all the things that go wrong okay so one thing that we see frequently commonly are patients um having to be admitted to hospital for uh, with life-threatening facial swelling after mm -hmm. an extraction of a wisdom tooth and because there's some sort of infection in a submandibular space or sublingual space 
if that person has felt that they can't breathe and they've taken themselves off to hospital and you find out about it a week later, that can be quite tricky to wind back on. Whereas if that patient could contact you and you assessed them and you said, hey, I don't like the, I, I don't like the look of this and you recommend they go or I don't know, maybe even take them. Can mm -hmm. you see how different it is in that patient's perspective? You didn't cause that infection. The infection was already there. That's why the tooth needed to come out, right? Yeah. But as you said, Mike, you can control the narrative. You can control the patient's perspective of the events and what went wrong and why. And you can meaningfully help them too. Yeah, and you can be part of the, um, part of the resolution rather than part of the problem. Um, you, you can be seen as, as, as helping them along that path. If you talk to uh, FaxMax surgeons, which we do routinely, they are aghast at the number of times a general dentist will tell patients to go to the emergency department and not give them any paperwork, any summary of what happened, what um, analgesics were prescribed, uh, how much local anaesthetic was, was administered, or even which teeth were removed. Yeah, it's madness, isn't it? Because there are occasions, of course, where you can't see the patient or you're sufficiently concerned that you'd say, go straight to hospital, go straight to the emergency room. But it's really helpful to either give the patient the information or call ahead so they know that that person's coming and they know why they're coming because there are some really important pieces of information that the hospital staff need to know. Absolutely. And, and then, look, this day of telecommunications, worst case, you could send your patient a text. Yeah. Your operation done at this time, this anaesthetic use, this complication, this management. And the patient can actually show the hospital staff your summary of events. Mm -hmm. um, it keeps the patient on side. It keeps the hospital on side. You've got, you've got doctors in the emergency department trying to triage and work out who's you know, who, who needs treatment first and, and, and what priorities. If you give them the information, it helps them make a better decision. No, absolutely. And unrelated to wisdom teeth, but related to communicating with hospital staff. If you have a patient who's inhaled something, of course, one thing that's incredibly helpful is to let the hospital staff see what the patient is has inhaled. So to either run down with the burr or not the one that you think's inhaled, but an example or send them a photo so they actually know what they're looking Absolutely. for. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, this is advice we give. If, if you've lost an implant driver, um, get a 10 cent coin and, a, and another implant driver and take a photo. Mm -hmm. So the radiologist can see what it looks like and get an idea of the size. Um, I mean, an implant driver to a medico might sound like a screwdriver and they're looking for something that's six inches long or Sorry, 10 centimetres long. So. <laughs> but that's right. You know, you need to contextualise it. Now, mm. you mentioned our oral surgery colleagues or maxillofacial surgeon colleagues and the information they give us. They also get a lot of feedback from patients when things have gone wrong about the things that the patient perceives have gone wrong. Do you want to outline some of that for us, please, Mike? I think one that really bothers our oral surgery colleagues is patients that come in febrile and distressed from the procedure. And, I mean, time moves very slowly while you're having oral surgery performed, but you get sense of um, patients that have been in the chair for an hour or two and the extraction or the removal's been unsuccessful. Then they're sent on for referral. So by the time the oral surgeon sees the patient, they're exhausted they're in pain, they've lost confidence and faith. They're hungry. And they're just so much difficult to work on. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think most of us at dental school are taught some sort of rule about when to cease an extraction attempt. And generally it's considered 15 or 20 minutes, meaning if you haven't got that tooth out in 15 or 20 minutes, then you should consider referral because your odds of being successful after that time period decrease and the impact of the surgery on the, on the patient increases. Mm-hmm. So certainly that's one of, the, um, one of the things we've got to consider when we're deciding when to seize or when to seek expert help. I mean, of course, there are situations where an extraction might take slightly longer, but you know you've got the tooth on the run. You know it's against the ropes. So that's yeah. fine. But it's really your 15, 20 minutes in and that just no action, like nothing's happening here. And you just, you don't even know where the roots are or you know where the roots are. They're not going anywhere uh, else. And, and when you pick up that coupons number two for the fourth time uh-huh. because you've tried everything else. Um, don't you just hate that? Yeah. And I, I, I look, I know we, I guess there's personal hubris there that, we set out to do the job. We've assured our patient we can do it. We want to complete it. But at some stage, we've got to take a realistic view of whose interest is this serving. Oh, look, it even happened to me. I'm ashamed to say, say, talk about hubris to an upper anterior on a much older gentleman. And I just, like, how, what was holding this thing in? I don't know, because I don't think I'd taken all the bone away. And it just wasn't moving. And I just looked at him and I looked at myself and I looked at what was going on and I just said, I need help. Mm. And I rang the max fax I refer to. And of course, you know, you know that he got that tooth out in 10 seconds flat. Yeah, yeah. And of course, very kindly told the patient that I'd loosened it for him. But the reality of it is, is that whatever was happening on that day, the tooth was not coming out. Mm. Mm. And I wasn't helping anyone by continuing. Yeah. And, you know, the patient was very, very gracious about it because I think... It was somebody that I had a good enough pre-existing relationship with that they knew that I genuinely didn't want to cause them any harm mm-hmm. as well. And they understood that I wouldn't be referring them. I'd, I'd pref- well, I, To be honest, I hadn't prefaced the possibility of referring them because of the tooth that it was. Yeah. So I had to do some very quick talking mid-procedure. But he understood that it, was, it wasn't about, I couldn't, it wasn't that I couldn't be bothered, that yep. something was going on here. And he was actually very grateful for the very prompt referral. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So should we summarise yeah, the on. advice we've given here? Knock so, yourself out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to throw to you. Um, <laughs> so yeah, when you are seeing your patient for the first time about the wisdom teeth, make sure you record the history, make sure you record your observations and your diagnosis. Um, sorry if this sounds didactic, but make sure your consent process is thorough include specialist referral unless you are particularly skilled in that area. Um, Make sure that it is personalised and is realistic in describing the possible adverse outcomes. Um, Don't be pushed or rushed into treatment. Um, Time it where it's in the best interest of the patient and in the best interest of potential complications afterwards and they don't have to be um, disastrous complications even just swelling and inability to open where people just need the time and the reassurance that look this is a bit unexpected but it's nothing to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel your patient is doubting you at this stage or you're not sure what's going on um, refer then. Just an independent expert opinion 
is worth so much to a patient and also to your reputation. Um, if you've dressed it for the third time and you're not getting anywhere, look, this is a time to reassess and maybe get our our specialist uh, colleagues to help us out. Um, if you are going to refer somebody to a hospital or flag that possibility, make sure your patients have a summary of what's happened so they can give that information to the hospital or make sure that when you patient rings you that you can do that referral and send them with that information. And I guess just make sure you know when it's in everybody's interest to bail out and refer it. And look, we all live to fight another day. Um, we don't have to believe our professional reputation and well-being hinges on not being able to get one tooth out. Right, one anterior tooth like me. Everyone who was listening yeah. went, oh. but you know, it's, what, but it's true. Yeah. Well, she's rubbish. But it's true because it's not what it hinges on. And I think as well, we've mentioned referral and specialists and I mentioned that I called the Max Vags. I have such a good relationship with the specialists I refer to. I'm really blessed that we do have two-way conversations. And I think it's really important to cultivate that if you can, because then if something does go wrong, they're more, I mean, they're more than happy to help you out always anyway. Um, oral and maxillofacial specialist colleagues, they're fantastic. But it can also be, it's great for the patient, but also if you are a younger practitioner and you are looking to grow in that space, because how are you ever going to get good at taking wisdom teeth out if you don't practice? Mm -hmm. And if you're constantly assessing everything as being on the edge of what you can do, then you're never going to get the practice get a good relationship with the MaxFax and speak to them because a lot of the MaxFax colleagues we know would be delighted to assist, wouldn't they, Mike? And Absolutely. have people in a theatre with them, obviously with the patient's permission. And yeah, like if it's your patient as well, for you to be there, for you to be involved. And that is how you're going to learn and that is how you're going to improve those skills because you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. I, I remember you know, early on in my career, the oral surgeon invited me along and the patient was so chuffed that I was there. He, his patient saw that as going beyond. I was going there to, for the learning experience. Um, the patient believed that I was so caring about his welfare that I was there to make sure that oral surgeon did a good job. Sounds like a win-win. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But, yeah, um, but you know, if you're going to ask your oral surgeon if they mind if you come along, look, the social contract is that you send them patients. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, they're going to look after you if you look after them. Um, so it's reasonable that you, you develop that relationship. Um, some practitioners refer patients to a number of different specialist colleagues, um, spreading the love or because they believe they've got a particular expertise in, in one area. That's certainly your prerogative. But, um, if you've got a, a firm relationship built over a number of years and a number of referrals. Um, things, people are going to look after people who look after them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't be scared of our specialist colleagues. They are non-judgmental and they really are there to help. So thanks, Mike. I hope that that's been helpful to everyone listening. And I guess just really take away from this that we are seeing increased issues with wisdom teeth. There are things that we can do about it. So if you just reflect on some of the things that we've discussed, you can start to put some of this risk management in place in your own practice. Yeah. So we do hope this was helpful to you and we look forward to sharing more guidance with you in the future. If you like Dental Protection Podcasts and you'd like to hear more, please subscribe and leave a review.